As our society continues to unveil fractures within its social and political systems, the show, Align Traced, aims to examine topics that are immediate, pressing, and impact the built environment in ways that require urgent architectural responses. A podcast by RAA at the Architectural Association. Hello, I am Fahel Massoud, and together with Aude Tolo and Maria Putri, here at the AA as part of Align Traced, we will be presenting a four-part series on the question of how colonial structures and mechanisms extend into the modern day and supposedly or nominally decolonized states. We've decided to focus on our respective contexts, so I'll be looking at Egypt, Aude at Burkina Faso, and Maria at Indonesia. Each have experienced very different modes of occupation, so while we will be speaking about the material and economics of these supposedly post-colonial states, each will offer a very different reading of these enduring mechanisms. Today we will be examining Egypt, looking in particular at debt as an economic device which perpetuates servitude. Egypt has a long history of debt that continues into today. Before I introduce our guest, I just want to give a brief overview of the Egyptian context, especially given that the country has never been fully colonized, according to the traditional definition. But it did, however, suffer a strong penetration and extended military presence in modern times. So we can quickly give a lay of the land. The country was, since the 1500s, an Ottoman province, but was then invaded in 1798 by the French under Napoleon. The French campaign only lasted three years, but this had a very lasting impact on the perception and representations of Egypt in Europe, while also laying the foundations for more direct trade with France. By the mid-1800s, the country gained quasi-independence from the Ottomans under the modernizers Mohamed Ali Pesha and his successors, which included his grandson, the Khedive Ismail, whom we will be discussing in more detail in this episode. So by the time the British invaded in 1882 and set up a veiled protectorate, Egypt was already very imbricated in a Eurocentric economy. The British were finally expelled in the 1950s after continued pressure, with a final blow with the 1952 socialist coup, which overthrew the Anglo-Allied monarchy and installed the first president, Gamal Abdel Nasser. So technically, the country has been independent for over half a century, starting with Nasser, then moving on to the Sadat presidency, which focused very much on liberalizing the economy, followed by Mubarak, the president then overthrown during the revolution of 2011, often referred to as the Arab Spring. But as we will be discussing in this episode, nominal independence does not guarantee sovereignty. Over these past three centuries of penetration, expulsion, repenetration, etc., the country has been exposed and subject to several debt regimes with particular resonance regarding self-governance. So we're joined by Yahya Shaukat, uh, who is uh, trained as an architect, I believe, um, but uh, works mainly as a researcher into housing and urbanism. Um, you are also a housing rights officer at the EIPR, uh, which we might discuss later, um, if you wish. Uh, as well as an, as an author of Egypt's housing crisis, which was published in 2020, um, and um, also co-founder of Hashar Touba, uh, producing applied research on urbanism in, in Egypt, um, writing up participa participatory action plans which address Egypt's housing and infrastructural needs. Um, I don't know if that's a fair uh, roster of uh, your uh, um, your credentials. If there's anything you would like to add. Uh, no, it sounds about right. Um, I'm also interested in housing policies and how uh, they relate to the, the right to housing and fair housing, the overall. Okay. 
great. So we are here, therefore, to discuss uh, debt in Egypt through the prism of your specialty, therefore, housing. Um, and I thought it would be nice to start uh, if you could situate us in a sort of historical overview of Egypt's relationship to foreign debts, debts uh, more generally. I mean, it famously started in, in the 19th century, the, the, the later quarter of, uh, of the um, 19th century with uh, Khedib Ismail's um, very big spending on, on large projects such as the Swiss Canal and many uh, palaces and, and other projects. And they led to, to a massive uh, debt um, in Egypt, also a part of a construct of um, and, and it, a view to actually occupying uh, Egypt based on that uh, debt and controlling uh, the Suez Canal by the British and French, which was the most important uh, trade route and economic route um, for them. And of course, a lot of this debt is also very intertwined with real estate because then you see the start of um, applying uh, private property uh, regimes in Egypt that were more or less suspended and um, very much uh, transformed uh, throughout the 19th century. And this really, this idea of, of property and property ownership is directly related to that and collateralizing it and, uh, um, and repaying it. Okay, interesting. But so under the Khedive Ismail, where Egypt is still uh, sort of loosely linked to the Ottoman Empire as a nominal province. Um, but so who did they approach? Who did they accrue uh, debt from at that point? Well, the 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 the, the royal family uh, at the time, um, uh, the Khedive had uh, supposedly uh, used his personal. Uh, property as as collateral, um, but of course this was also intertwined with what is the property of a state that uh, he controls. Um, so a lot of uh, these royal and and also state owned assets were um, were were put under control, and of course mainly uh, the Suez Canal itself, which is um, which was run by a company um, that would be later based in France. And uh, but also these Azab, so these big uh, agricultural estates, yeah. um, and in them they also had this. The the, the word Azab is also synonymous with both the estate and the hamlets where the peasants lived. Um, so they were under the control of whoever owned. Uh, the estate and this kept changing hands with this um, transformation of uh, private property and being sold or um, repossessed by banks to pay uh, for debt and then resold to other uh, owners and divided and consolidated and so on. So, so for me, we see this at the very sort of local uh, level and these people that that there's been very uh, little research about them and how um, they were forced to move and uh, and to live in different places, but always under this kind of proxy control of uh, of the landowners. Yeah, interesting. And so you describe them quite well, actually. I mean, it's super interesting. It's a sort of indentured servitude where it's bringing back the idea of a serfdom, basically, in these sort of uh, large, uh, large, uh, almost industrial farms. Um, yeah. Interesting. And so 
from the Redivis Mail? Can we move on maybe to further down the line in the 20th century? What 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 would you say is the next big moment of uh, um, for uh, just a loan being uh, given to the government or to uh, governmental entities? So we see um, uh, we see more or less this this um, aid uh, which. Um, uh, I'm not sure at the time was it a loan or a grant in the 1940s yeah. uh, made by the United States to uh, the, the the government of Egypt, which was then also uh, occupied uh, by the British, um, as a measure, sort of as, a, as an anti-communist measure to um, address one of the biggest ills, which by then you had a very high number of landless peasants. And this was one of the biggest uh, grievances that was stoking social unrest um, and also pushing uh, or part of the nationalist movement that started in the in the 19 well from 1919 uh, earlier and, and throughout the 20s and, and 30s um, and so one of uh, the, the, the these policies that linked um, land ownership to the social unrest to uh, the U.S.'s anti-communist um, policies was to actually distribute land to landless peasants. And while this was also a call uh, by nationalists and, and many uh, grassroots movements, um, it was uh, seen as as different, not not. Um, not in the way that it was called for in terms of re redistribution of wealth, where a lot of land was owned by very few people, uh, the, 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 the rich landowners, but actually um, moving uh, landless peasants to uh, parts of uh, to land that isn't cultivated and for them to reclaim it. Um, so there was a project inaugurated by King Farouk in 1947-48 in the, the complete north edges of, uh, of the Delta. And uh, Robert Vitalis talks about how a group from um, related to USAID um, went to witness this project, was still not initiated by them, but they were uh, studying a similar project um, and where the king himself was giving out these deeds, these land titles to uh, peasants that would get a parcel of land, about five acres, uh, with a house um, for free that they would uh, live in and own. And this was the, the, the biggest uh, part of it, which is owning uh, this house yeah. and this land. But then also within this kind of overview of the state, um, controlling this land and controlling the agriculture that is is done there so there's a lot of support from it but also probably buying uh, setting out the crops that would be grown and then buying them and of course the land reclamation is is the hardest part of agriculture so you're not on land that is already cultivated or that is actually good for cultivation you have to make it cultivable so there's a lot of effort also um in it and these poorest of the poor are the the, the ones that uh, were supposed to do it okay does that in a way relate to uh, tim mitchell's argument about uh, this sort of rule of experts where you therefore have to bring in a lot of often foreign expertise to be able to find ways of actually making the land uh, uh, profitable, um, I don't know, introducing new forms of irrigation, of cultivation. Did that play into, into the 1948 uh, 
uh, land reclamation projects or subsequent projects? I'm sure it does because these, I mean, and what you see from uh, from later projects that have been studied is that yes, they they do require um, um, a huge amount of expertise and investment, and usually the expertise is misplaced. And I think what I like about Timothy Mitchell's um, point of view is that he compares this kind of um, supposed expertise, especially international or or um, hierarchical, higher up from uh, officials or foreigners and, and so on, to the local expertise um, of, of local uh, communities and people who know their land better, and which is completely ignored in these very large-scale projects and ends to them being failing and these failures being hidden by um, these new sort of supposedly improvement or development or evolution of these projects, whereas these evolutions are actually hiding previous failures, like he showed with the Aswan Dam, that was heightened many times. But this heightening was not necessarily uh, an evolution of the project. It was hiding that it, it actually failed. And this was sort of completely redoing it again or, or trying to address these failures. Um, so in these land reclamation, uh, we see later on in, in others that have been studied is that how they completely break down because they rely on um, much bigger uh, infrastructure that cannot, or maybe the, the, the management is not put in place where the communities uh, can manage these projects or where proper studies were made for their long-term feasibility um, or even their feasibility from, from the get-go. So, so a lot of them, as we'll see, are just sort of uh, headline projects, but with, with no real um, uh, no real feasibility uh, in them. Okay, interesting. And along with that, I always find it really interesting when he speaks about negative externalities. So this idea that anything that is a negative outcome, rather than being understood as the outcome of a certain project or a failed project, is just put as this sort of um, sacrifice that had to be made for the greater good, for the technological advancement. Um, but yes, okay, that makes absolute sense. Um, so we're now in the 40s. Could we move on maybe... Uh, I suppose I would have proposed uh, Sadat, but maybe uh, I don't know if it's skipping over Nasser. Well, yeah, maybe yeah, maybe we should we should talk about the the, the Nasser era a bit. So um, during the Nasser era, a lot of um, a lot of things changed, of course, for that are related to uh, property and housing. So we see the the dismantling of these aspas of these estates and the whole feudal system um, of estates with the confiscation of. Uh, large tracts of land, um, the the peasants um, owning, uh, being the wealth being redistributed to uh, a certain amount of peasants. So not a lot of land. Ultimately, maybe about uh, ten or twelve percent of land, but also a big part of of the rest of the land under ownership was um, rented to them under rent control agreements for for very afford, affordable rents. So they come out from under this kind of sharecropping and, and being proxy controlled to um, being a bit more uh, empowered. Um, and in, in terms of housing, we see this sort of expansion and proliferation of social housing on, on the urban or the, the city uh, level. Um, so, and these were rented uh, housing. 
Um, so it's it's a very big change with this uh, uh, regime, with this with its uh, socialist uh, ideologies, and that um, were very much uh, beneficial to a large tract um, of the poor. Um, and then we then see this complete again. Uh, dismantling within 20, 25 years of this uh, by Sadat. And this is really the first stage uh, neoliberalism of the neoliberalism that Egypt is, is sort of under until today. So with Sadat's infitah and again realigning Egypt uh, to the West, um, he starts um, um, th- th- these uh, international financial organizations again start giving uh, Egypt loans and uh, uh, being interested um, or through these uh, development projects. So we have uh, loans for the reconstruction of uh, the Suez Canal cities um, after peace with Israel, after they were uh, destroyed um, in the war between 67 and 73. Um, so a lot of money is going there, and a lot of this reconstruction is actually housing, um, um, public housing or replacement housing for people that used uh, used to live there. Um, there's also loans for again these de- desert development or uh, land reclamation uh, projects, uh, where we have these again idea of model villages or homes uh, for uh, peasants that would be. Uh, resettled and would live there to uh, cultivate the land. and But then we see also the terms of this kind of changing. So people that end up living in these homes uh, are actually now uh, not renting them, but then so that sort of uh, uh, does this right-to-buy scheme in the mm-hmm. 1977-78, so actually um, a couple of years before Thatcher does it in, in Britain, yes. um, and allows existing tenants to buy their uh, the, their social housing uh, from the state. Um, but also, and this is really the big departure, is that any new social housing being built by the government is then for sale. It's not rented out. Okay. So they're building a lot of housing, but then it's sold. And because it's sold and because people have to pay um, deposits, um, so automatically whoever used to um, or whoever was poor at the time could not afford them. So it was more middle-income uh, families that could afford uh, okay. this housing and not the poor. So it really changes this mindset. So, And this makes me call... Um, all sort of social housing, public housing built by the government from then, I just call it government housing because it's not necessarily social or it's not necessarily public. Interesting, yeah. So it has nothing to do necessarily with affordability in relation to the median income of an average Egyptian. But so would you say this is really the first stage then of this sort of neoliberal coming in Egypt? Okay, And and you see that. You see that in in how these um, housing funds start becoming rich uh, from selling the housing. Before that, they were actually that the government was spending uh, yeah. money on housing and losing money um, on housing because it was a welfare uh, that was seen as being cross-subsidized by other revenue. Uh, but here, then it becomes um, a commodity that the government, uh, at the time, local governments and also uh, the Ministry of Housing could make money from. And you see that later on manifesting by the end of the 1980s, having these 
housing estates that are empty. Mm. And where in the world do you have so-called social housing that is empty? You usually have rosters of people applying for it and not having enough housing, but here you actually have a surplus of supposedly cheap housing, but it's not cheap. So, And this is why um, there's a surplus. But then these uh, funds have to build the housing because they have to use the money that they have, and they can only use it. They're, these are... Uh, what they call line items, budget line items, that they can't change the, the, the purpose of. And so it becomes this kind of um, procurement cycle or procurement regime where it has to be built for the money to be spent. And regardless of whether it is actually answering um, a social question um, or not. Interesting. And so in this case, uh, or at this period, where is this money coming from? Is it really just the government allocated in a certain portion of their budget? Is it, um, again, this idea of uh, the World Bank, for instance, funding projects only if it's put to that particular... Not yet. So initially, the, 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 the housing in the 1970s, a part of it was funded by uh, loans uh, okay. from uh, international financial institutions, but also by grants from Arab countries. Oh, um, interesting. So Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, uh, funded uh, big housing estates uh, in these places. So so the government of Egypt did not pay for them to be built, but then also got this sort of um, free revenue from selling them. And then this revenue went into these housing funds that kept building new housing and selling them. So whatever housing was being sold, the money was going back into the funds. Um, and these funds were relatively rich or, or well uh, funded uh, throughout the 80s, even though Egypt on a whole in the 1980s started becoming uh, very poor, very cash-strapped, and uh, very famously, um, especially in, in dollar terms and in, in having foreign currency, um, uh, in the, the, the late 1980s was a very, very crucial time that brought in the structural adjustment policies and new wave of IMF and World Bank loans under new terms. Okay. Just before we go on to that, I'm quite interested by this idea of the of Arab countries actually um, participating in this funding. What is their uh, motivation for doing so? Um, at the time, and especially before the, the peace deal was signed with Israel, that they, they were supporting Egypt and especially its new president and its uh, um, coming out from socialism and, and being more liberal. This, this was also good for them. Um, new laws for investment um, uh, were very made very good terms uh, for them to invest their oil money in Egypt. Um, so so the, this was a kind of a very rekindled um, spirit uh, between Egypt and, and uh, uh, the, the Gulf Arab uh, world and, and the non-socialist uh, Arab world and moving away from other socialist uh, states. Um, but this honeymoon ended um, in 1977 with the signing of the peace agreement, agreement with, with Israel and Egypt was thrown out of the, the, the Arab League. Um, so, but until that happened, <clears throat> a lot of money was coming in. Princes visited um, the housing estates being built. They're, they're even named till today um, after the king. So they have the Faisal, uh, you have Faisal districts, actually, I think, in both Suez and uh, Pursaid. You have Sabah, um, which is the Kuwaiti uh, sultan then. 
um, um, housing estate, or they call it the city, Madinat Sabah. So, um, so they exist until now as neighborhoods within these now uh, larger cities. Okay. Also, interestingly, there's a sort of uh, um, circle where we've come back to this uh, cycle of uh, um, Gulf funding of Egypt. I'm thinking about Sheikh Zayed and those sorts of neighborhoods around Cairo. Um, is there, what parallels can one make between the way in which um, that sort of funding was applied? Well, I, I think it's, this is what's um, different. I think you have these, these let's say, two schools um, of funding. You have the, 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 the Arab Gulf funding that is that used to be mostly grants and that came with very little uh, oversight over what happens with the grants. So Sheikh Zayed City, for example, that's built on the outskirts of Cairo, um, was actually a grant to build a housing estate for the poor. And today it is one of the, I don't know, upper-class Uh, districts of Cairo. So the money was used to build the infrastructure for it, maybe some uh, social housing in it. But then later on, the under the infrastructure that underpinned this uh, estate was expanded into the city that is now known as Sheikh Zayed, that has um, some of the most expensive real estate in Cairo. So yeah. um, so it, it, it goes to show how how this kind of funding was, was not really, didn't have much strings attached to the particular project that might have uh, other strings attached elsewhere, but yeah. not directly related to the project. Okay. Uh, whereas also with, with IMF funding, you have the funding related to certain policy reform and changes, changes in legislation and so on. So this is more this kind of micro funding. The World Bank tends to fund certain projects that are um, the aim to have certain targets. And if these targets aren't met, the funding is related to them. They used to have a lot of also policy-related uh, funding um, that will come to uh, later. Maybe we can start talking about now. So um, Absolutely. Like with, this, with this sort of second stage, let's say, uh, neoliberalism from 1991 with the stru uh, structural adjustment policies, um, we start seeing this um, pressure to um, get the Egyptian state to get rid of its state-owned uh, enterprises or its um, uh, these interests and it has in certain sectors where there's pressure for the private sector to come in. So uh, to divest from them and to privatize basically Uh, these companies. So up until then, all this housing was being built by uh, state-owned contractors that were nationalized in the 60s, a lot of them, or new ones that were initiated. So you see some dip in housing production by the end of the 90s, um, probably because of this, but also, um, and this happens in the financial side of things, is that the loans that people take out to buy the government housing, the interest on them increases very much. Oh. So they start, the housing starts becoming unaffordable or even more unaffordable to the middle-income uh, buyers uh, because the interest they have to pay is, is much higher. So this creates another problem. Uh, for this kind of uh, pro program and project that 
um, that stays basically up until uh, the, the late 2000s. Um, so, so, so we have this sort of happening, and then by the end of the 90s, we see another push part of this uh, um, the structural adjustment is to initiate the mortgage market in Egypt, because mm -hmm. we, it is seen as something that is not exportable. Um, that um, even with privatizing the companies. Sorry, you just said mortgage is seen as something that's not exportable. Just no, the, the real estate itself is not. Real estate, yes. <laughs> but the way to get so, and even if you do, or or with this kind of emergence of uh, private sector real estate uh, developers, um, they can't really sell uh, the housing they're building without mortgages. Yeah. Um, and this is also very interesting. Uh, a global theme is to have these big global mortgage companies be part of this debt of uh, of buying houses and real estate. So um, we see this initiation of uh, mortgage law um, uh, and uh, this whole infrastructure for mortgage, but then it stops um, in its uh, in its place because we do not have. The registered titles, so registered titles and registered land, um, is 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 really the minority, or was the minority in Egypt then and uh, now. So you're talking about almost twenty or thirty years of of having this problem and not being able uh, to solve it. Um, and basically, the whole all reform of of land and property, and again, this is kind of echoes with the late 19th century is to initiate mortgages where property is a collateral and to get this, um, to capitalize on this uh, debt cycle. Um, yeah. Okay. And so just to, sorry, just to cut you for a second, but to unpack the sort of, um, the, the 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 sort of profit that can be made off of the mortgage. The idea is that uh, inflation um, interest rates sort of explode or are quite high within the country because you have a devaluing of the of the currency. Is that correct? How does it work in relation to AirSAP in relation to those uh, structural adjustment policies? Well, yeah, I, I it it's not or it. It's not um, well. This is the thing. It's it's a paradox because when the structural adjustment policies push up the interest rates because the the, the pound is devaluing, then it plays against the mortgages, and this yeah. is what they found out quickly. So even so, so you had the, the biggest challenge was basically the, the 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 land or the property registering because banks would not uh, collateralize a property that isn't registered, but then also um, buyers. Would not take out mortgages because the interest on them is too high. Okay. So, and for, and this goes against the kind of the bread and butter um, way of of getting access to housing in Egypt is to actually build homes. And most people on on the vast majority, and and this is this goes back to historic times, build their own homes. The market is is relatively small where people buy homes. So yeah, you see, even now, all these ads and developers selling housing and so on. But Egypt still a uh, hundred million people, over twenty-four million households. So um, this demand is by, I would suggest today, about twenty percent 
of um, of the households to actually buy housing, the rest build, and then a portion also rent. So, um, so and building is very incremental. So, uh, whenever you make some money, you buy the land, and then you make some more money. So the next year you start building the structure, and then mm-hmm. uh, the year after that you start filling it in, and maybe so it, it takes years to, to build your first home, and this is why you have this kind of ubiquitous um image um landscape in egypt of these housing with these columns that are left at the top with the rebar steel steel rebar sticking out is that this is like the future so they they build as the money comes in and um but yeah over the last 10 years especially in urban areas and big urban cities you have these developers whether informal small informal developers or, or bigger ones building these towers informal towers and selling the housing um but then the way these are sold and this goes from these popular and small developers all the way up to the biggest uh, real estate developers is that people actually co-invest or co-investors in the project because you're buying off plan. You pay the developer a deposit and installments um, for the next two or three or five years until the unit is completed. And then they hand it over to you. And then for another five years after that, you're still paying off its installments to the developer. So the financial side of things is with the developer, not with the banks, because this is not a mortgage. This is a sort of a debt that is made to the developer, even though you are a co-investor. Interesting. And so it's a sort of parallel form of, I don't want to call it informal, but... uh, It is Uh informal or it is semi-formal because you're paying in these, um, uh, they call it promissory notes or promissory checks, where the check, you you actually give the developer a whole lot of checks for your next installments up until the project finishes. And each check is payable at a certain date. Interesting. And this is semi-formal because it's, it's not illegal, but at the same time, it's not ex- totally legal too. There's there's nothing that checks are supposed to be paid or their promise of payment of, of funds that are actually with you. They're not supposed to be a promise of future payment. Yes. Um, to what extent also are sort of informal... Uh, um, saving pits um, coming into play in this in this form of uh, payment. Yeah, um, like the Gamayat. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well, yeah, they, 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 they of course, they, this happens on on, uh, on the more popular levels and maybe also up to middle income and lower. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you you see them everywhere. But for housing, I think it's a bit too much. Um, yeah. You wouldn't be able to get so for. Uh, school fees for uh, for other sort of smaller debt or, or relatively smaller payments uh, you see that but i don't think you have it what you have you have you probably have loan sharks so people that uh, get loans to pay the deposit which is a big chunk up front um and then they need to pay the installments to the developers so the developers hold that debt and um, and yeah, and it's completely outside of the banking system. So the developers are the ones and used to ha- to not have any input from financial institutions on how they price units into the future. 
So they're selling you today, but you're paying off over 10 years. So how do they um, manage inflation? Yeah, And this is where you got a lot of projects that ran out of money whenever uh, big jumps in inflation or devaluation happens. Okay, And throughout the 80s, 90s, and even 2000s, you have projects that actually asked people or demanded from people to pay longer installments or higher installments later on to cover the difference in costs. And the people are stuck with the developers as co-investors because they already paid for something that still didn't materialize. So they're up against either maybe getting what they paid back, but completely devalued because they would get the, the nominal value that they paid and not the real value of what it what it is today. Yeah. Or co-finance or or or, or um, raising the finances and and uh, putting in more finance to see the project finished okay interesting and as an alternative to that then you have these sort of ghost developments exactly which, yeah which dot so, uh, so you have a lot of that especially in the 90s you had a lot of those and they stood empty for years um and maybe some of them are still empty till today uh, because also there's a lot of legal wrangling, so you have some of the uh, the, the buyers wanting to pull out and and uh, lodging legal cases, and the others that have the finances to continue wanting. To. So it, it, it then becomes it completely breaks down. So, um, but yeah, the, uh, this this has largely sort of evolved over the last ten years, where now the developers get um, ad- advice from financial institutions about how to price uh, their units. Okay. And actually what we're seeing today is a new form of debt um, in that cycle, um, which is what they're calling securitizing these future payments. Oh. So big developers are um, uh, are getting advice and getting uh, f- financial support from non-bank financial institutions that um, help them price the units. And once they reach the, 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 the point where they're, they're handing over the units to uh, their buyers, so crossing more or less the 50% threshold of, of the, 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 the value of the unit, uh, and it's already there, then they sort of collateralize this future debt. Hmm. And okay. they become, and they lend, or they actually pay the developers, this future debt upfront today, okay. uh, collateralized with this future payments that are coming in. Okay, I'm not actually sure I fully understand. Yeah, the... <laughs> no, it's, it takes a long time. So, so you have this, this, these um, uh, groups or or the selling of, of future payables as or what they call it, securitizing them, this debt to these developers that is being sold to financial companies that pay off or, or pay the the developers uh, what they would have gotten in the next five years they pay them today so they have um, uh, they have liquid liquidity to build new projects and not have to wait till all this debt is paid off and it is sort of held or um, now the new um, owner of this debt are these financial companies so this is a very parallel semi-formal system to the mortgage system um, which the banks and not these uh, non-bank financial companies do not want to touch without the property registration. So the, the banks and the mortgage law stipulate that buildings, the, the property has to be completed and finished 
and sold to the buyers, and then only then would they step in and uh, collateralize it. Yeah. Okay. And so, so it's only like in the last few weeks is that now the financial regulatory authority has allowed banks to uh, mortgage uh, um, property under construction. But of course, it's going to be not any developer. It's going to be a certain select developers and so on. And the biggest difference between mortgages and the securitized um, uh, pay payables, or what I like to call the, the informal debt, is that mortgages ultimately give um, buyers a bit more security yeah. because it is not them that is that are liable because with checks, you are personally liable for the checks. And if, you, if it bounces, if you don't pay, you can be jailed according to Egyptian law. Whereas with a mortgage, the collateral is the housing unit, is the property. So what would happen is that the property would be repossessed and uh, and you would be you wouldn't basically it's not a crime you wouldn't go to jail for not paying yeah whereas it is a crime if you don't pay uh pay a check okay yes you basically so, so there's a bit more security with a mortgage but the the whole development industry is not set up for a mortgage because they need the buyer's liquidity the buyer's investment in them to build the units to begin with okay they yeah. can take out again banks would not give them um the loans they need to com to cover the whole construction and so what what motivated the shift in recent times or in the past few weeks as you were saying i think the main motivation has been international financial agencies that want to internationalize this real estate debt okay because so far it's been very national it's been very local based and the way to internationalize it is to have mortgage laws in Egypt that are similar to mortgage laws elsewhere and for international mortgage companies to start operating in Egypt and get a piece of this big uh, real estate um, industry. Okay, yeah, that makes absolute sense. Can we conclude maybe by speaking about your most recent or what I believe to be your most recent research on uh, COVID and how it relates to housing policy? I think it's It's a nice way to bridge sort of the research aspect and the more policy proposal um, aspect of your of your work. Um, if you would like to just expound on that, sure. If possible. So, so going with this kind of, with, with our uh, research aims at Tentuba and, and looking at this this applied research, where our research is very informed by what happens on the ground um, in in housing and on housing policy, is that during COVID we looked at. We identified that renters and tenants are uh, would be the biggest um, uh, losers from uh, the nationwide lockdown that was imposed in March 2020, um, yeah. because um, again, rent is is very deregulated. It's not um, the, the, there's very little uh, in terms of supporting support of uh, of tenants, and because the government supports um mostly housing like if it's uh housing that is 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 the social housing uh sold so there isn't much support for tenants when it comes to money wise so we thought that any decrease in income uh because of this lockdown and because um at the time there were no provisions made for uh job loss due to 
lockdown or due to the COVID pandemic, yeah. that this would directly affect uh, tenants' ability to pay their rent. Um, and so we got we 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 started actually we we wrote um, uh, a policy recommendation for uh, rental support and for moratoriums on evictions until after uh the lockdown and after um uh work uh, resumes um and then people started thinking that uh this was actually something that was in place and started asking us for this aid money and telling us that sending us messages that they are two months behind on rent and some were three months behind on rent and how could they be helped so we um teamed up with a couple of NGOs um, that we uh, sort of drew this kind of, this program where they could raise money to pay off uh, like an emergency uh, rental support. And they managed to support about uh, 20 or 24 families um, mm -hmm. at the time to cover about two or three months uh, rent for them. Wow. Okay. Is the... Uh, is the government at all supportive of those sorts of measures? Have they um, implemented anything in light of uh, in light of your proposal? In terms or? of rent, they didn't. Yeah. So there there weren't any eviction moratoria. There wasn't um, uh, rental support in that name. There there was a support package for informal informally employed people that they would apply to, and they would get uh, at the time a one off payment, and then this payment was again. Um, readministered uh, sometime later. I think hundreds of thousands of people applied for it. And I think a very big part of it, if they were tenants, would have gone to paying off rent. It was about £500. So it wasn't too big, but it, in, for, for that segment, it would could have paid a good part of the rent. But but again, not totally, because you had, I mean, you, you had this kind of, you have a very big employment precarity. So even people that are employed in, in let's say, proper private sector firms, a lot of them don't have uh, contracts or the contracts are ended uh, abruptly, uh, mm -hmm. or they have part-time contracts that could be ended very quickly. And so you had a lot of the support staff that were not needed when businesses closed did not get their um uh, did not get their salaries, yeah. uh, so they were either let go uh, or put on temporary leave, or they had their salaries delayed. Um, so this, of course, all uh, is a very big burden on tenants. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, okay, well, thank you very much. I would just actually like to ask, because we are all studying architecture, um, and you uh, come from that same background, did you... Um, ever work uh, as a full-time designer um, or how did architect your architecture studies come to inform? Yeah, I worked, I worked as an architect for the first sort of 11 or 12 years after I graduated. Um, that actually taught me a lot about policy. I don't think I would have learned about housing policy in a, in, if I went to I don't know, political science or something that dealt directly with policy. It's, um, yeah. I think from practice, there's a lot that you learn uh, but how policies work or rather don't work. And, um, and yeah, you see a lot of things firsthand. So, and this is the whole reason again behind Tentuba being this research studios that we aim to do both research or applied, uh, research that is based on, um, actual application, not theory. Yeah, definitely. Okay. And that's something that we're always looking for. I mean, I think the aim is really to move beyond criticality or use that as a, in a, I mean, 
not a great word, but in a productive way, um, sort of giving back or constructing a, a proposal or a new ideal, sort of. So that's quite nice to hear. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think, thank you very much for joining us. It's been really, really nice. It's been no, really, thank really you. Nice. Thanks for having me. So we've come to the end of this episode with our guest, Yahya Shaukat. What really stood out to me was this idea that these transactions, this accrual of debt, can happen in a complete bubble, trading numbers and fulfilling contracts without, in fact, the projects ever being realized. So the funds are being transferred and the currency being devalued, but in some cases you end up with these ghost towns, which we discussed. But so I think this is a critical point to end on, this complete disconnect between the reality of the colonized and the economics of colonization. But while this may be true in the context of Egypt, our next episode actually focuses on a very different type of relationship to economic servitude. Thank you for listening and feel free to check out the show notes for references and additional materials.